way through the book of Philippians, and we come really to the halfway mark. Uh, so we've finished uh, two chapters and have two chapters left. So Philippians chapter 3, and uh, the text this morning is verses 1 through 6, really actually uh, 1 through 3, but I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. Uh, I'll just let you know my, my plan going into this uh, was to do verses 1 through 11, and I decided to... Uh, to break it into two for a couple of reasons. One, because uh, verses 7 through 11 are some of my favorite verses, and I think really get at the heart of the whole letter of Philippians. And so I wanted the spotlight to be able to fall on that on that section without uh, bringing in other verses to, to kind of uh, uh, take away from that, that uh, focus. And uh, the other reason is that these uh, verses will really help to kind of set the stage uh, for what we'll look at then next week in verses 7 through 11, and uh, also uh, will allow us to give some more attention to the, the theme of uh, works righteousness that we find in these verses this morning. So Philippians chapter 3, I'm going to read verses 1 through 6, and uh, we'll focus on verses 1 through 3. I invite you to bow as we ask for the Spirit's anointing on His Word this morning. Lord God, we uh, have come into Your house to worship and to praise and to sing songs of praise to You. And now, O Lord, we come under the authority of your word to to hear and to listen. We pray, O Lord, that you give us hearts that would receive correctly the words that you would have us to hear. And O Lord, may your word, which is alive and active and sharper than a double-edged sword, O Lord, may it do its work in our hearts and in our lives this morning that it would bear fruit that would be for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word, Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law of Pharisee. As for zeal persecuting the church, And as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. You may be seated. I think uh, one of the problems in the world today is that we don't take warnings seriously. Uh, We're just kind of have grown immune to them. We don't really pay attention to them. And the reason we don't take warnings very seriously is because there are so many ridiculous warnings about so many ridiculous things. And so I thought I'd begin this morning by sharing with you just a few of the uh, uh, actual warning, uh, warnings that are found on actual warning labels of uh, many of the products that we might buy today. This is by no means an exhaustive list, and you may have very well your own. Uh, but I thought I'd just share some of these with you. These are actual products that we buy that come with warnings. So if you go out and buy a little canister of pepper spray, uh, it may well come with a warning that says, may irritate the eyes. 
which of course is funny because it will irritate the eyes. Uh, if you buy a letter opener, uh, it will come with a warning that says, safety goggles recommended. I don't know about you, but I, I always put on my safety goggles when I sit down to open up my mail just to make sure that nothing springs out and gets me in the eye. Uh, if you buy a, 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 a baby stroller, it may come with a warning that says, remove child before folding. It's always a good practice. Uh, you can buy a wheelbarrow that comes with a warning that says, not intended for highway use, or a fish hook that says, harmful if swallowed. You can buy an iPod shuffle that comes with a warning not to eat the iPod shuffle. You can buy dog medication that comes with this warning. It may cause drowsiness, so use care when operating a car. So if you're about to send your dog out on a road trip to go drive to the store, make sure you don't give that dog this medication because he cannot drive well with it. And then last but not least, my, probably my personal favorite, uh, if you buy a hair dryer, it can come with this warning. Caution, do not use while sleeping. In our text this morning, the Apostle Paul issues a warning. But unlike these, uh, these ridiculous sorts of warning labels, Paul's warning really matters. And we need to pay attention to what he says. The warning that Paul gives is a warning against the false teaching of works righteousness. And if you want just sort of a simple and broad, a very simple and very broad definition, works righteousness, we might say, is this. It's the idea that, that we achieve or maintain a right standing before God by our own effort or by our own obedience to God's law. It says basically that salvation is, at least in part, earned or, this is an important distinction, not necessarily just earned, but sustained by the good works that we do. I'll give you an image. Uh, yesterday, we took our, our dog, Ruby, out to a very, very muddy marsh, and she got completely and thoroughly covered in thick mud from nose to tail. And this was early on in the day, so it got a lot worse than that by the time that she was done, completely with thick mud, like literally globs of mud on her head, all the way from her nose down to the tip of her tail, completely and thoroughly covered. Well, a little, bit, a little while later, I, I saw Ruby lying in the sun, licking herself to make herself clean. And it was just sort of this, this picture of what are you doing? It was this picture of hopeless, utterly hopeless futility, right? I mean, as you can probably tell from the picture, there is no possible way that she was going to get herself clean by licking. The only way she could be made clean was to be washed very thoroughly by me four times later in the day. Well, the only way that we can stand in the presence of a holy God is to be made perfectly and completely and utterly clean, spotless, blameless, without, a, without any stain or wrinkle, as the scriptures say, with no spot of dirt, no stain of sin left on us. But like Ruby, our sinful condition has made us so thoroughly unclean that we cannot possibly clean ourselves. And so what we need is to be washed, to be washed by God through his all-sufficient grace. It is the only way that we can be sufficiently clean to stand in the presence of a holy God. 
And works righteousness is the futile attempt to make clean by our own ability what can only be made clean by God. I think Tim Keller captures well the distinction between works righteousness and the gospel when he says, religion says, I obey, therefore I am accepted. The gospel says, I am accepted, therefore I obey. And so in our text this morning, Paul is warning the Philippians about this false teaching of works righteousness. And it's most likely coming from a group uh, known as the Judaizers, which uh, is a group that was uh, really uh, uh, influencing pretty much all of the Gentile churches that Paul had planted. And so the Judaizers were, were Jewish Christi- Christians or professing Jewish Christians who were saying that the Gentile Christians had to do certain rituals and acts in obedience and compliance with Mosaic law. So you've, you've come to Christ, that's great, Christ has brought you, brought you in, now you have to do these certain Mosaic law things to act in accordance with those, these acts of, of rituals of obedience to Mosaic law to remain in the family. And most notably, they were saying that the Gentile Christians had to be circumcised. So uh, if you remember, of course, under the Old Covenant, circumcision was an act that indicated inclusion in God's covenant community. And now the Judaizers were saying that Gentile Christians had to abide by this practice in order to be part of God's family. And the problem with this, with this false teaching, is that it undermines the all-sufficient and perfect work of Christ. It, it robs Christ of his glory. It says, in effect, that we must add something to what Christ has already done for us to make us right with God and to give us a place in his kingdom. It's, it, it's like saying, that's, you know, Christ has done some, now we have to add a little bit to, to, you know, just to kind of finish it off. You see, the gospel says the perfect righteousness of Christ is given to us, is imputed to us through faith alone. As Paul put it so uh, clearly and concisely in Romans 3, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. It's, It's given. It's imputed. It's given to you by faith alone. You do nothing to earn it, nothing to to attain it. And to demand more than that is an insult to Christ and the perfect work of redemption that he accomplished for us. That's why Paul was so passionate and so so heated about this this error, this false teaching of works righteousness. How could you rob Christ of his glory? Do you not know that Christ has done all of this for you, that his sacrifice is sufficient? How could you then take something away from that? And so this is why Paul comes down so hard on the Judaizers. It's out of his passion for the glory and the sufficiency of Christ that he uses such strong language against them. He says in verse 2, Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. And just, just a surface reading of that verse gives us a sense of the, the strong language and the strong tone that Paul uses. But these are not only strong words, but they are words that are loaded with irony. Because Paul uses these three terms that were often used to describe Gentiles, right? So the Jews often describe Gentiles as dogs. And you got to picture not the, or, you know, the foofy little you know, pet dogs that we have in our homes that, that we carry in our purses as we go shopping. That kind of, not that kind of dog. Dogs were scavengers. Dogs were, were, uh, were you know, mongrels and, and nasty things that fed off of garbage in the streets. 
And so the, the Jews often described Gentiles as dogs, meaning that they were ritually unclean and outside of God's covenant community. And Gentiles were said to be evildoers in contrast to God's people who were the doers of the law. And it was the pagan Gentiles who were mutilators of the flesh because they engaged in the practice of self-mutilation to try to appease their so-called gods just like the prophets of Baal did on Mount Carmel. And now what Paul does is he applies these, these derogatory Gentile designations to the false teaching Jews. And so in a, in a sense, he turns things on their heads and he takes their own rhetoric, as one writer says, he takes their own rhetoric and he slaps them hard with their own slogans. And with these words, Paul asserts the first part of the great spiritual reversal, which is that the Judaizers have become the new Gentiles. And like I said, the, the strong language that Paul uses is, is meant to show what a serious offense it is to require any kind of additional works for a salvation that God has given freely and entirely by grace through faith in Christ alone. We see the same kind of strong language in Paul's letter to the Galatians where uh, the Judaizers had so clearly sunk their teeth into the Galatian church and many uh, within that church were beginning to buy into their teaching and, and going back to the requirements of Mosaic law as part of their walk with Christ. And Paul said to them, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Are you beginning, after beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? So you, you had it right at the beginning. You were running a good race. You received the Spirit. Why would you go back to the flesh? Why are you going back to those things that you were doing before? And then he goes on to say this, that if you pursue circumcision as a means of righteousness, then Christ is of no value to you at all. And in fact, he goes so far as to say that I wish those who were teaching this thing would just go all the way and emasculate themselves. And so he says, you who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. And as with the Galatians, Paul wants the Philippians to be on guard against this Christ-minimizing, self-exalting, glory-robbing, gospel-contradicting teaching of works righteousness. And the same warning that Paul gave to the Philippians still applies to us today. Of course, the specific issues are different, but the dangers of works righteousness remain. It is a, a constant temptation for us to think and act as if our salvation is, is earned or sustained by the good works that we do, or that our own righteousness before God is, is something that we at least in part achieve or maintain by our own effort and our own obedience. There, there's this constant pull because we are by nature bent inwards. So there's this constant pull to apply that same sort of thing to our Christian walk. I mean, the whole world is kind of functions that way, right? We, you, you do, you perform well and you get a reward. You, you do well in school, you get the good grades. You, you do well at work, you get the promotion. You, you do well in, in, uh, in, as an athlete and you, and you get to go to the next level. That's just the way the world functions. We tend to apply that same thing to our Christian lives. We do well, we get the reward. Like Ruby, we just can't seem to shake that tendency to try to lick ourselves clean. And this false theology of works righteousness is like a spiritual poison that seeps into our hearts and it seeps into our churches, drawing us away from the sufficiency of Christ and drawing us back into ourselves. 
which is exactly where the enemy wants us to be. This poison of works righteousness manifests itself in a hundred different ways, and sometimes they're really obvious, and sometimes they're really subtle. And so let me just list for you a few, and again, not by any means an exhaustive, just a, a sampling of some of the ways that we see works righteousness in our context today. We see it in the glittering give and get promises of the prosperity gospel. We find it in all of the, the self-help formulas that flood Christian bookshelves and media. We see it in the, the spirit of arrogance and superiority that, that sneaks in when we are doing really well in our works of piety and our obedience, when we're, we're, we're running the race well and we begin to think pretty highly of ourselves. And we see it also, on the other hand, in the spirit of despair when we're not. It shows up in an attitude of judgment against those who are farther behind in their journey of discipleship. And it also shows up in a, in a distorted sense of admiration and hero worship for those who are farther ahead. It can color our view of parenting so that we assume that the better behave the kids, the more righteous the parents. And if you have kids who, who, wander, who reject God and wander away from the faith and end up getting messed up in their lives, and then we just naturally assume, oh, the, the parents must not be as righteous as those whose kids are faithful. The false teaching of works righteousness has also made its way into countless children's devotionals, and I would add adult devotionals as well. And on the surface, they look so good and biblical, but if you read them straight through just as they are, you come away with a whole lot of things about, about what we must do for God and very little about what God has done for us. And if you read them straight through just as they are, the kids will learn a whole bunch of rules and moral lessons, but they have not beheld the wonder of God and the goodness and the sufficiency of his grace. And in the end, they're a little more than a works righteousness disguised as biblical truth. I would add one more that's not on the list here, and that is a, a, a proneness or a tendency to, to burn out and weariness. Because often, if we are doing acts of service and acts of obedience by our own effort, it only carries us so far. And it almost always leads to burnout and weariness and depression and tiredness. Whereas if we are doing them, on the other hand, as the Spirit works in and through us, we are more often energized been burned out. Let me give you an image, another image that I think will help to sort of put some flesh to this idea of works righteousness. Suppose that you, uh, you see two apple trees off in the distance. And from a distance, these two apple trees look exactly the same. They're, they're you know, well, not exactly, but they're two apple trees. They, they look basically the same, the same kind of trees. But as you draw close to the trees, you see that they are not the same at all. You see that one of them is, is an actual apple tree. And this is not true in this picture, by the way, so don't try to look close, more closely at one than another. These two in the picture are, in fact, the same. But suppose that, one, that, that they're not. You, you draw close, and one of them is an actual apple tree that's producing actual apples. And the other is just an ordinary tree with a whole bunch of apples tied to the branches. So somebody has gone and, and gone through this painstaking effort to tie a whole bunch of apples to all the branches all over the tree to make it look like an apple tree. You see, the genuine apple tree produces apples from within, from the sap that is flowing within its branches. The other tree doesn't produce apples at all. 
The fruit was born not from the inner sap of the tree, but from the outward labor of somebody creating this illusion, trying to make an ordinary tree look like an apple tree. We see, this is, I think, how, how many of us attempt to bear fruit in our spiritual lives. We, we try to achieve in our own strength what is not growing in our hearts. We, we do the good works, but they are nothing more than outward acts, like apples tied onto a tree. And we become like the people of Israel, just sort of going through the motions, doing the right things, and all the, all the right things outwardly, all the right acts and the right works, but none of it is flowing from hearts that are truly connected to God and captivated by his grace. I think God said it so well to the prophet Isaiah when he said, these people come near to me with their mouths and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And so their worship of me is nothing but rules taught by men. They had become like a tree with apples tied to the branches. And what God desires is real trees producing real fruit from within as the sap of the Holy Spirit fuels our obedience. Now, if works righteousness is like a poison that seeps into Christian lives and seeps into Christian churches, we need to know how to guard against it. Or to put it another, another way, we need to know what is its antidote. And Paul says that we guard against the deadly poison of works righteousness by rejoicing in the Lord. He says in verse 1, further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Then he says, it is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, which means one of two things. Either he's pointing back to chapter 2, verse 18, or Paul had called the Philippians to rejoice with him, or he's looking ahead to what he's about to say here about works righteousness and, and sort of uh, in a previous correspondence or in other talkings and preaching that he'd done, uh, he's, he's reminding them of that here and saying it's no trouble for me to write these same things to you again. Either, either way makes sense. Um, but so he says, uh, uh, after that he says uh, this at the end of verse 1. He says, and this is a safeguard for you. So our rejoicing in the Lord is a safeguard against the thing that he is warning us about, which is a safeguard against the dangers of works righteousness. And that word safeguard means to to make secure or to make free from danger. This is what rejoicing in the Lord does. It keeps us grounded and secure, free from the dangers of works righteousness. If we have our eyes and our gaze fixed on God and what he has done and not on ourselves, it frees us from that danger. And we should notice, by the way, that rejoicing in the Lord, when Paul says rejoice in the Lord, it is a command it's an, an imperative, and so this is not something that we, uh, that we necessarily feel. It is something that we do. We rejoice in the Lord by coming to worship on Sunday mornings. We rejoice in the Lord by, by singing songs of praise throughout the week, even when we don't feel like it, just like Paul did when he was singing hymns of praise to God while he was in chains in prison. We rejoice in the Lord by intentionally remembering what God has done for us, by reflecting on and delighting in all of the good gifts that he has given. Again, by turning our, our, our attention and our eyes and our, and our focus Godward and delighting in all of the gifts he has given from the giggle of a baby to the freedom of forgiveness. 
There is safety for believers in the joy of the Lord. For as one theologian said, the taste of joy renders the tempter's offering bland by comparison. Let me say that one more time. The taste of joy renders the tempter's offering bland by comparison. When we rejoice in the Lord, when we taste and see that the Lord is good, when we truly experience and, and get, our, get it into our hearts that the joy of the Lord, everything else pales in comparison. And part of this rejoicing in the Lord is keeping our focus on God and not on us. This is the point that Paul makes in verse 3. So after identifying the Judaizers as the new Gentiles in verse 2, that was the first half of that great reversal that I mentioned, he goes on to identify the second half of that reversal in verse 3 where he identifies believers as the true Jews. And this is what he says. He says, For we are the circumcision who, who worship by the Spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. You see, these, these are all Godward actions. When we worship by the Spirit and when we boast in Christ and we, when we put no confidence in the flesh, which means in, in human achievement, in human ability, in human, effort, in human effort, when we take our attention off of ourselves, the more we keep our eyes fixed on God and what He has done for us in Christ, the more we will see that we have nothing to boast about except for God and what God has done for us and accomplished for us through Christ at the cross. It reminds me of a time when I was in seminary and my roommate and I were, were lifting weights in the gym and we were really getting into it. We were like, you know, we were, we were, we were well into our workout and we were pushing each other. We're kind of yelling at each other, you know, like, like guys kind of do in the gym and we're, you know, pushing each other to, to lift more, to add more weights and to push harder. And so we're dripping with sweat. We're adding the weights on and we're yelling at each other and grunting and thinking we're all, we're all strong. <laughs> and then uh, a couple of bodybuilders came into the gym and they came next to us and they started doing the same exercise that we were doing. They, so they put on like twice the weight and they start with, without any effort at all, you know, lifting. And suddenly all the weight that we were doing is like, it looks so puny and pathetic in comparison. It's kind of the same idea here. When we lift our gaze to the glory of Christ, even our best works are shown to be pathetic and puny. I love the way one writer put it when he said this. He said, I could make a list of my good deeds but it would amount to a post-it note on the backside of the tractor trailer of my depravity. I'm going to say that one more time. I could make a list of my good deeds, but that list of good deeds would amount to a post-it note on the backside of the tractor trailer of my depravity. And even the post-it note he said would read, it's all by grace. And this is what moved the Apostle Paul to say to the Galatians, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I have nothing to boast about. And we're going to see next week as we look more, that Paul would, if he wanted to, if he was thinking the way the world thinks, he'd have plenty to boast about. But he has come to see so clearly the glory of Christ and what, that it's all by God's grace that he has nothing in himself to boast about anymore. And so may I never boast in anything because I got nothing. I got nothing but this post-it note on the backside of the tractor trailer of my depravity. 
And so may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me. All that the world had considered gain and, and, and beautiful and good and valuable is just garbage. Because I've been crucified to the world and the world's been crucified to me. The antidote to the deadly poison of works righteousness is this flesh minimizing, Godward focusing, rejoicing in the Lord. In 1969, in a small town in Mississippi, a, uh, a group of people gathered uh, together on a balcony overlooking the Gulf of Mexico, and they were gathered together for what they were calling a hurricane party. And so there was a, maybe a, a storm that was brewing, and they wanted to be right to have, to have this front seat, you know, place to, to see this storm out at sea. And so with drinks in hand and with music playing, they socialized and they told, story, told stories, and they were hoping to see this, this storm come up. And it was sometime after dark that the cops came and said, so you, really, you, you, you guys all have to leave because there's a major storm that's, that's, that's forming out at sea, and, it, and it's headed your way. And they just laughed him off. And so they just, they just dismissed it and said, well, you know, they didn't pay any attention to the warning. And they carried on with their party. Until 10 o'clock at night when the front wall of Hurricane Camille came ashore with wind speeds over 200 miles per hour and, and, uh, and coastal waves over 25 feet high. And the entire apartment complex was completely wiped out. And all of those, every single one who had gathered for that hurricane party died in the storm. And what a tragedy and a foolish tragedy it was because they would have lived if only they had heeded the warning. May we learn from their mistake and heed Paul's warning about the dangers of works righteousness. May we rejoice in the Lord and train ourselves to be gazing ever upward instead of inward. And then we will say with Paul, as we're going to look at next week, that I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Let's bow together. Oh Lord, as we come before your throne this morning in a time of silent prayer of response, oh Lord, move us to fix our eyes on you, to shift our gaze away from ourselves and away from all of our pathetic and puny attempts to earn, earn or attain or sustain or maintain any kind of righteousness before you. And may our gaze be fixed on the all-sufficient glory and perfect sacrifice of Christ who accomplished for us what we could never even begin to accomplish on our own. Oh, Lord, hear our silent prayers of response this morning.
Oh, Lord God, give us hearts that boast not in the flesh, but boast in the cross of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Give us hearts, O oh Lord, that, that are constantly trained to shift our gaze from ourselves to you. And may we see anew the glory of what you have done for us, the all-sufficient and perfect sacrifice of the cross, the only means by which we are washed and made clean, to be able to stand in the presence of our holy God. Lord, forgive us for the many ways that we keep returning to that inclination towards works righteousness. May you burn it out of us by the blazing glory of the cross of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.